God, what a great thing it is to be able to gather in your name and to celebrate the name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Lord. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that we can know salvation because of what Jesus did for us, because of your incredible plan that offers us forgiveness of sins. We just pray that you would uh, open up our hearts and our minds now as we uh, look at your word in Revelation. We just pray that you would uh, speak through me, just uh, speak the words that you want each and every one hearing this message to hear and be able to apply in their life. Lord, may we all draw closer to you as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed sometimes there's just voices? When you hear that voice, you stop and you listen. Sounds like an old Smith Barney commercial, I think. But, um, but there's certain people when they talk, that voice just grasps you. You, you have to listen to it. I think of, you know, in my life, some of the voices that always made me stop and listen, you know, when Charlton Heston would do something or James Earl Jones would speak, you listen. You know, Ricardo Montalban, I'd love to hear his voice. Or one of my current favorites, Denzel Washington. I can listen to that guy talk about anything. For many Christians, you might be thinking immediately of the voice of a, a Chuck Swindoll or maybe a Robbie Zacharias or a Tony Evans or an Alistair Begg. There's just something about those voices that, that you get to hear. When I was a kid, I was a young baseball fan growing up in the San Francisco area. And boy, when I got to hear Russ Hodges tell me it's a bye bye baby or Lon Simmons tell me tell it goodbye. Wow, was I excited because it meant a San Francisco giant that just did a home run. And I love that. Or maybe you heard Astros baseball here in Houston and Milo Hamilton saying, holy Toledo, what a play. There's just something we get excited when we hear those voices. Now, I don't claim to have one of those voices, but today we're going to look at Revelation 14 in chapter uh, chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses six through 13. And if you want to turn there, go ahead and and start turning there, because in Revelation 14, verses six through 13, We're going to hear about three voices. We're going to hear about three proclamations made by three angels. And we're going to find that everyone will hear the voices of these angels. Although we're also going to find they may not want to hear what the angels are going to have to say in these verses. So if you would, let's start by just reading the text. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 14. And let's read verses 6 through 13. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments 
and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Some powerful verses in there. We're going to get a chance to explore them. But before we take a look at these three proclamations that these angels have made, let's also make sure we set the context. Because in the first 11 chapters of Revelation, we heard all about the letters to the churches, and then we learned all about the seven trumpet judgments that took place. And then we got to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the text kind of gave us a picture in 12 and 13 of what Satan was up to or what he's going to be up to during the tribulation time. If you remember in chapter 12, we learned about the woman, the dragon, and the child. And then in chapter 13, we learned about the beast from the land and the beast from the sea. But then chapter 14 starts to shift back to, you know, what God is doing in the tribulation. And if you remember last week, we learned about a little bit more about the 144,000. Remember the, the song that only they could learn. We're learning more about that. Within the backdrop of all that and the anticipation of these bold judgments of God that are going to be coming that we're going to see in chapter 16, we get to the middle of chapter 14 here. And that's where we start looking. And that's where these angels make their proclamations. So let's take a look at what these three angels proclaimed. Let's look at the first angel. It's in verses 6 and 7. And if I were to give you two words to remember from this angel, it'd be the words eternal gospel. Let me read verses 6 and 7 again, the first proclamation of the uh, the angel. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's an incredible thing to think that an angel's making this proclamation. Angel simply means messenger. It's a messenger delivering this. But notice what it says the angel's doing. It tells us, first off, the angel is flying. It's present tense. The angel is on the move. He's flying. And then it tells us further, he's flying what? In your verse, you'll see it says he's flying directly overhead. Some of your translations may actually say mid-heaven or mid-heavens. It's the point in the sky. Think of the noonday sun. When the sun comes up and it reaches that apex of the sky and it's right there, that's at the point that this angel is flying. And he's going to be proclaiming this message. And I think it's a a neat correlation that he's flying at the apex of the sky, what I think is the apex of what's happening in the tribulation time right here. Now, some of your translations, I know, may say mid-heavens or mid-heaven. You're like, what's this mid-heavens thing about? You know, what what does that mean? Uh, Just real quickly, in Scripture, you'll find um, three different terms are uh, used for the different levels of heaven. The first level of heaven that's mentioned in Scripture is our atmosphere, you know, think up to about 100 miles about where this angel is going to be flying. It's our atmosphere. Then there's a second heaven mentioned in Scripture. And it's what we would think of as the heart starry host or space is what we normally would think of. And then Scripture also mentions a third heaven. Remember, you know, John was caught up into the third heaven, it says. And that third heaven would be the dwelling place of God. It's what you would normally think of when somebody says heaven and, and you think of that. So there's these three different heavens. Well, this angel is flying at the apex of that, that first heaven, right at, right at that point. And you might think, why is he flying up there? Why not right down here with us? And I think it's at that apex, at that point in the sky where that, that noonday sun is, because that's the spot that he will be most heard and most seen across the earth. 
This angel is going to make this proclamation. He's going to be on the move. It says he's flying. It's present tense. He's on the move, and he's going to be making this proclamation continually unhindered to the earth. And it tells us in verse 6, who's going to hear it? It's going to be to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He's going to be able to pronounce this unhindered to the world. And notice in verse 7, it tells us he spoke with a loud voice. I think it's another indication. Everyone will hear this proclamation. This angel will be heard. But we're also going to see that along with the eternal gospel, the judgment of God is also mentioned in this. It's going to be God's last call of grace to this world. So let's look at that proclamation once again. Look at what the angel tells us. First, it tells us he proclaims the eternal gospel. This is the only time in Scripture that an angel is told to preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is the job of the church. It's our job. We, sh- we need to be out doing that now. But why this phrase, the eternal gospel? Why is this angel proclaiming the eternal gospel? Well, if you're going to understand the eternal gospel that's mentioned in 14.6, you have to look at verse 14.7 because there's urgency in this message. The eternal gospel is based, as it says, on the men on the need for men to fear God. They need to fear God. They need to give him glory. And why? Because it tells us, because the judgment of God is at hand. John Wolvard describes the eternal gospel this way. The eternal or everlasting gospel seems to be neither the gospel of grace nor the gospel of the kingdom, but rather the good news that God is at last about to deal with the world in righteousness and establish his sovereignty over the world. This is an ageless or eternal gospel in the sense that God's righteousness is eternal. See, this angel's bringing men back to the basics. Remember what we've heard. They've been worshiping the beast. They've been, you know, falling to this world and everything the world and the beast have been talking about. The angel brings men back to God, says, fear God and worship him. The fear of the Lord, not the fear of the beast, is the beginning of wisdom. The angel's demanding that men reject the beast, that they formally turn and go, turn back to God and worship him and fear him. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight: Don't fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This gospel presentation that this angel is making, this eternal gospel, I think is a return to what we read about in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 where God reveals his, it's what we would call natural revelation or general revelation, that God is revealed in nature. And why does he do that? Well, it tells us in the text, so that men are without excuse before God. Let me read you those verses from Romans 1, 18 to 23. It reads this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and all the things that have been made. And here's the key to that. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give God thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
in the tribulation time, as we said, men have been giving worship to the beast and the Antichrist. The angels telling them, turn from that. Turn from that worship and turn to a right worship of God. It's preparing the way for when Christ returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom on earth and when he reigns on earth. But the eternal gospel includes the judgment, as we see in those verses. I think it's also a strong uh, motivation for those that are going to hear this eternal gospel. It's also going to be a strong motivation for them to turn to the gospel of grace and the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The gospel, it says the, the proclamation, says to give God glory. I think this is a call to repentance on the part of man. As people fear God and return to him and give him glory, it ultimately leads where the gospel always leads to, to repentance, to a knowledge of God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that we can have forgiveness. But notice the final piece of that proclamation of this first angel. It tells us why he's making this proclamation at this point. Because the hour of his judgment or God's judgment has come. In other words, there's an immediate response that's needed here. There is urgency in the message of this first angel. The hour of God's judgment has come. It's at hand. There is no more time. John Tillery spoke to us back in May, if you remember, about last chances. Well, this really is man's last chance before facing God's full wrath. And this angel makes this proclamation. So that's the first angel, the eternal gospel. Let's move on to verse 8 and look at the second angel. The second angel, I would give you two words. You would think of the words fallen Babylon. Let me read verse 8 for you. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. I think the first thing we have to realize there's a second proclamation from an angel because I think the first angel is being rejected. I think there's a, a sad truth that that's probably why we need a second angel to making a proclamation. But notice it says the second angel followed. In Greek, that just simply means to follow behind in the same pattern. I think like the first angel, this angel is also going to be probably flying at that same apex level. Uh, and it says he's saying, present tense. Once again, I think it's just like the first angel. The second angel is going to be flying around the world at that apex point, proclaiming this message to all the world. It's going to be a continual thing. But the second angel, his message starts to point out the tremendous difference between those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb. It's an incredible difference. Notice in verse eight, it starts off. It tells us about Babylon, the great. Now, this is the first time that Babylon is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. But we're going to see Babylon the Great mentioned six times now going forward. It's mentioned here in chapter 14. It's mentioned in chapter 16, in chapter 17, and three times in chapter 18. We learn about Babylon the Great. And we're going to study that a whole lot more in this fallen Babylon the Great in chapter 17 and 18. But I will tell you there's a lot of debate about there. You, you can find books and sermons and podcasts all over the, all over the map on whether or not this Babylon the Great refers to the actual city in Babel, in Iraq or whether it refers to a world system, whether it's some form of a combination of both. So you can find all kinds of things. And I'm going to let you study that on your own and come to your own conclusion. But for today's purposes, my conclusion is that when we're talking about here is that the Babylon the Great is referring to a world system. 
And what I mean by a world system is I mean it refers to a system that's religiously, politically, and economically opposed to everything that is of God. I think that's what it's talking about when it talks about fallen as Babylon the Great. Notice also the word fallen that it mentions. It's what? You, do you see it once? No, you see it twice, don't you? It's repeated. I think it speaks of just the certainty of which this is going to happen. The fall of this world system is, is a certain thing. It kind of reminds me of another time in Scripture when uh, we saw a word repeated that talked about, in that case, the, the literal fall of the, the country of Babylon. Remember in Daniel 5:25 when Daniel's called in to interpret the writing on the wall for King Belshazzar? And it started off with Mene, Mene, Tikal, and Parson, if I'm pronouncing this properly. But it was meant that, hey, the kingdom had been measured and been found at fault and wanting, and it was going to be destroyed. As in, this, as in that case, this case, the angel is making this proclamation, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, because it is certain to happen. Matter of fact, notice that the word fallen is actually past tense. This actually hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain to happen that it can be spoken of in a past tense sense, even though it has not yet taken place. The first angel we saw mentioned a personal judgment of God. The second angel is warning us about putting all of our trust in a world system that is doomed. It becomes a warning to us not to do that. It's a warning, I think, for the, the tribulation saints, but I think it's also a warning to us, too, to not do the same thing now. Put it this another way. Everything that man's putting his trust in, all of man's great accomplishments, they do stand judged and doomed. Think about what man has accomplished. There's some incredible accomplishments. Think of all the agricultural marvels that we have today, the way we can produce food. Think of the medical advances we have. How about all the technology that we enjoy today? You know, there's other things. You know, just think of the spaceship. We live in Houston. We're in Space City. We've sent people to the moon, <laughs> and we've sent satellites and telescopes beyond that. Uh, incredible advances. And don't get me wrong. These things are incredible achievements, and they've brought much good to mankind, and they've brought a lot of benefit to mankind. The point that I'm making here is that the idea of putting all of your trust in those things, all of that is what stands condemned by God. That's not where our trust needs to be. Our trust needs to be in God, it's going back to what the first angel was telling us. Fear God and worship him. So, back in verse 8. Notice also the message tells us that all the nations have been deceived by this system, whose head we know is the Antichrist. Men have been led into this idolatry, into this false system, by a God who is no God at all. The angel proclaims that men drank of the wine of her sexual immorality. Wine just meaning something, representing something which intoxicates or disorients. It tells us man has been intoxicated. We've been disoriented. We've, man has been drawn away from God by all of what this world is offering, this world system. The nations of their own accord did this. They all followed. They all took, I think some of your versions say, the maddening wine of her adulteries. They all took it willfully. I think it goes back to what we just read in Romans chapter 1. It's that willfulness, that willful move away from God. And God warns us about that. Because men are going to be without excuse. It also mentions the, uh, the passion of the wine of her immorality, or like I said, some may say the maddening wine of her adulteries. I think what it's telling us here is passion for this world and putting your trust and your faith and your passion into everything of this world 
really manifests itself in taking you away from God and in hatred toward God. It's really what you would call spiritual prostitution or unfaithfulness to God. We're going to see coming up in verse 10, they drank this cup of wine. But in verse 10, we're going to see that men will drink another cup of wine. But they're not really going to like that cup at all. So that's the second angel, fallen Babylon. So we come to the third angel. And the third angel makes his pronouncement in verses 9 through 11. And I would just give you one word on this one. It's judgment. Let me read verses 9 through 11 of Revelation 14 again. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. See, this third angel is making a proclamation directly to those who have chosen. They have chosen directly to not follow God. They have chosen to follow the beast and receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand. Whew, scary thing. Because notice what it says. Look at their fate. God's wrath is going to be poured out what? Full strength on them. In other words, God's wrath is going to be poured out. It's not going to be mixed with any mercy when this judgment comes. This is an incredibly terrifying thought. Now, this idea of God's wrath being poured out as a cup of wine to drink goes back to the Old Testament. We have a few examples of that from the Old Testament. In Psalm 75, 8, we read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with uh, There is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Isaiah 51, 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And in Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16, it says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. (laughs) God's judgment, this cup of the wine of God's wrath, we're going to see it. It's going to be these bold judgments that we're going to see in chapter 16. And it's awful. But let me say right here, God's wrath is a holy response from a righteous God to those who have rejected his love and the grace revealed in Jesus Christ. Everything that we praised God for this morning, people have rejected it. Look at verses 10 and 11 in this this passage. We get a vivid picture of what the horrifying fate is for those who accept the mark of the beast. Listen to what it says. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you catch that? They're going, to have, they're going to know the presence of the Lord. They're going to have a constant presence of the God that they have rejected. I think that's a major part of the torment. It tells us the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest or relief, day or night. They face conscious, eternal torment. Jesus himself described hell in Matthew 28 as a place of eternal fire. And in Mark 9, he described it as a place of unquenchable fire where the fire is not quenched. I've got to say this is quite a different picture from some who I have actually had tell me this. 
that they tell me they can't wait to get to hell because it's going to be one big party. There's going to be nobody to judge them and they're just going to be able to party with their friends and do whatever they want. Folks, let me be really clear. There is no party in hell. It is awful. It is eternal. Don't buy that lie. There is a real place. But know that scripture is also very clear. God doesn't want anyone going there. Second Peter 3, 9 tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, we need to be out there telling people about this. We need to be out there telling people how they can avoid, how they can know for sure they will not face that torment in hell. That they can know that they can be in eternal rest with God in heaven forever. Now, I realize some people don't like this doctrine of eternal punishment. Well, maybe some of you listening or watching, you may not like the idea of an eternal doctrine, a doctrine of eternal punishment. You might not want to believe that God could punish someone eternally for sins that they committed on this earth in a finite period. But I think the problem is we tend to underestimate the breadth and depth of our sin before a holy God. If you think God's not being fair, the people on whom he's telling this judgment that it's coming, not only have they rejected when we had the church age and there's preaching and the word of God's around, But these people in the tribulation time have rejected the lesson from the first seven trumpet judgments. They've rejected the two witnesses. They've rejected the testimony of the 144,000. And they've rejected the testimony of the first angel that told about the eternal gospel. Let me just read you a quick summation of this idea of the doctrine of eternal punishment from a man named J. Hampton Keithley uh, III. (laughs) He had a book called Studies in Revelation. He wrote this. Whether man is repelled by the judgments described here is really not the issue. The issue is that the eternal God and creator has revealed them to be fact. The problem with man and the reason these judgments seem repugnant and wholly distasteful is man's inability to comprehend the awesome holiness of God's character. See, God's wrath is an expression of his holiness. It's directed at all that does not conform to his holiness. And we've seen some of the outcomes in verse 10, 11, what that's going to be like. But let me remind you of one glorious fact. And we celebrated it, what, 45 minutes ago? Jesus Christ on the cross took the wrath of God. He took the punishment on the cross for our sins. It's what Stephen Lawson calls redemptive wrath. The fact that Jesus on himself, paid the price for us that we could have forgiveness. That's the glory of this whole thing. But notice also, this has to be done while there's still time. And I think that's the proclamations these angels are making. Time's running out. Don't let today pass without knowing that you are saved. Today is the day of salvation, as we've heard. Now, if you want to study some more about this idea of of, of God's wrath and some of his attributes, uh, let me just give you a quick quick recommendation. Go uh, download the Ligonier Ministries app. Download that, and then when you download it, go to the teaching series. And there is a a series on the attributes of God by Stephen Lawson. Uh, There's eight 20-minute lessons. They're really good. They'll really draw you closer to God. And the last of those actually talks about God's wrath. 
Uh, highly recommend that, but I highly recommend you listen to all of them. They'll, they really are worth your time. So those are the three proclamations of the three angels. Let's kind of start wrapping this up by looking at the last couple verses. And really, I just want you to notice the contrast between verses 11 and 13. In verse 11, you notice it tells us there is no rest for the wicked. There's no rest. There's eternal doom and judgment. But then look at verse 13. What does it tell us? For those that remain in Christ Jesus, there's what? Eternal rest. What a difference. But between those two things in verse 12, it also tells us that this calls for the patient endurance of the saints. For those that are in and keep the faith in Christ Jesus. Pavan uh, started this idea a couple weeks ago. He started talking to us about the idea of endurance. And the word endurance appears seven times in Revelation. Defined endurance is this. The ability or strength to continue or to last, especially despite fatigue, stress, or other adverse conditions. Or William Barclay put it simply this way. Uh, endurance is the quality which enables a man to bear up under trial. Remember, these tribulation saints that this is being written to, they're about to face the worst intense persecution in human history. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world to now and never to be equaled again. They're going to face that kind of stress. You and I, we can endure today. We can endure because we know that our salvation is a signed, sealed and settled matter. Because of faith in Jesus Christ. But as we do that, we also need to keep the commandments of God as we live this life and we go through the trials of this life. First John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. In the midst of trial and tribulation that you might be facing today or that you might face in the future, you might be tempted to start wondering, is this all worth it? Is it really worth it to keep my faith in God? The answer is clearly yes, absolutely it's worth it. Let me read again verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their toils, for their toils, for their deeds follow them. Now that's a lot to take in and that's a pretty weighty passage and a lot to take in. But let's conclude this by starting to look at how we can apply this to our lives. John Tillery's made it very clear as we've gone throughout this whole study in Revelation. The word, the one word for those who remain faithful in Christ Jesus is victory. There's victory in Jesus through all of this. But also know that God has a specific plan for each and every one of our lives. He has a plan for every one of you and something that we can all be doing for him and for his glory. So as you leave here today, let me encourage you to do a couple things. One would be to stay in God's word. Stay faithful in your personal study of God's word. Getting together with those who teach and preach the word. Stay faithful to the word of God. And encourage one another. Have we not learned anything else over the last six months? How much do we need to encourage one another? We're not in this alone. We're in this together. And so encourage one another. Encourage one another with the words to stay faithful and stay true to Christ. And share the gospel. We read about that. We talked about that earlier. Tell others how they can know about forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Tell them about it. And another part of that, I heard this at a uh, at a nephew's graduation a few years ago. Preach the gospel to yourself. 
Don't forget to remind yourself of the good news of the salvation that you know in Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself and enjoy the good news again. And finally, I would tell you, endure. And whatever God has called you to do, endure in continuing to do that. It might be working at camp. It might be in missions. It might be teaching Sunday school or children's church or kids' Bible club. It might be working with our youth. It might be the guys that are helping out in the AV team that every Sunday make sure as many people as possible can see and hear the Word of God taught. It might be working in a welcome center or serving coffee or whatever it is that God has called you to do. Be faithful, endure, continue to do that. Know the final outcome. And pray. Let's be a church of prayer. Let's not give up on prayer. It's our most powerful tool that we have. Let's be a church and a congregation of prayer. So back to where we started. You and I might not have that voice that the world's just going to stop and listen to. But realize, for everyone that you come in contact with, you are the voice that has the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the voice that can let people know, you can encourage and let them know how we can all be avoiding hell and how we can spend eternity in eternal rest with our Lord and Savior. Let me finish with 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Just encourage you because it says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Uh, Just the encouragement it is to know, Lord, that we have eternal rest, that Jesus paid the price for our sins. Uh, Just uh, what an incredible thought that is. As we sang earlier, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, that we can know that we will be with you eternally someday. So we thank you that even though we hear a, a weighty message about Uh, torment and and punishment. Lord, the overriding theme of that is we don't have to face that because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Help us to remember that, Lord, for those that are hearing this that have not accepted you as our Lord and Savior. May you reach their hearts that they would know salvation in Jesus Christ. So we just lift up the rest of this day before you. Help us, Lord, to go forth with the good news of the eternal gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.